and welcome to the Net Positive Podcast. I am your host, Ted Flanagan, and this episode of the Net Positive is going to feature a conversation with my great friend, Steve Lewis. We're going to go off into the field of architecture and urban design, and specifically diversity in architecture. Steve and I met some years ago. Uh, he was serving as an architect and a senior project manager for TRC Solutions. We were both focused on getting solar on rail and bus divisions at Los Angeles Metro facilities. Hey, Steve, welcome. Welcome to the Net Positive Podcast. Delighted to have you on the show. I need as much net positivity as I can get, Ted. It's all great, man. <laughs> well, this is the land of net positivity. And so you, you just, you're plugged in now, whether you like it or not. Inductively, you will be recharged. Well, thanks for being part of the show. And uh, as we were saying, I, I really wanted to talk about your some of your background and some of your career accomplishments, some of the coolest things that you've done, and some of the coolest things that you're doing now, and sort of where you're going. So let's go. Let's go all the way back, Steve. But you and I are both New Yorkers. Talk about growing up a little bit. Sure, sure. Um, well, I grew up from two years on, two years old on, in a suburban neighborhood in Long Island on the South Shore. Uh, Lakeview, which was part of uh, Rockville Center, you know, one of the main stops on the Long Island Railroad that we all know so well. And um, I grew up uh, the oldest of four kids in a, um, a really loving household um, with parents who were uh, new to suburban home ownership themselves in 1960. A part of the wave of emerging black professionals who were starting to be able to move out and 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 grab some of that suburban life, um, and it was um, a, a pretty wonderful environment. We lived on a dead end street, and at the end of our block there was like a woods, mm. and so there wasn't a lot of through traffic going back and forth. So we, as kids, and all the kids in the neighborhood, played in the streets. We, we played down in the woods, we made tree houses, we made forts, we had, you know, this, and it's funny, I, I recently gave a lecture to, a, um, I opened up a housing studio for a colleague who was teaching at University of Miami. Um, and uh, my lecture to them was about um, home ownership as the American dream, access granted and access denied, which is all about the proliferation of um, Levittowns and suburbs and the GI Bill as the facilitating agent to allow people returning from the war to really grab these homes and to start to build their wealth. And, it, you know, unfortunately, Black folks were not allowed to participate in that part of the GI Bill. And so when we now are talking all this talk about equity and, um, and, and, and wealth uh, disparity, uh, I think it can really be traced uh, back to, to that that moment, but we were able to um, enjoy that. My dad's a veteran. He was in Korea uh, as a lineman. When he came back and he he enrolled at Howard University and he got his architecture degree in about 1959, I think, um, at Howard. And we were living in Washington at that time. And shortly after, uh, moved moved up to New York. And then by 1960, when I was four years old, we were able to you know move out to to Rockville Center, and. Um, yeah, the, the the part of the lecture and why it's relevant to what you're asking me is that I said to the students and I say to everybody when we have this conversation, you know, we all come from somewhere, right? 
And that somewhere over the years has become ripe and and fragrant and romanticized. So when you think back about that place you grew up, you know, your, your memories go right to the, the sweet spots. Um, of course, I don't reflect and remember the guy who beat me up one day or when I didn't get chosen to go on a team or something. I'm always thinking about the, the good stuff, you know. And so um, it, it was a, a very good and nurturing environment, both inside the house and, and out. Um, and I watched my dad, you know, I was very close to him and watched him emerge uh, as an architect who worked for other people to finally, about 10 years later, um, starting his own practice. Uh, one of the early projects that he, he did while he was still uh, employed by others was he somehow got wired into a group of architects who were commissioned to design the Venezuelan pavilion at the World's Fair, the 64-65 fair. And I'll never forget, I was like eight years old at the time, seven or eight, and uh, he had this beautiful model on the table. And I, I, I just looked at this model and I was just like fascinated by it, you know, and, and then he would drag me out with him to these construction meetings on site at the World's Fair site while the whole fair was being built. And I'm looking around as a kid, you know, I mean, I remember the Unisphere, they dropped down and, and it's like mind blowing. So years later, you know, when I decided to go to architecture school and I fell in love with it on my own terms, you know, and they, people would say, well, how did you get interested in it? It didn't really occur to me. But then when I started to really have to think about it, those seeds were planted by that World's Fair and by a, a, a private home that he did for uh, Milt Jackson, who was the vibraphonist in the modern jazz quartet. Very famous, John Lewis, the pianist, you know, and the modern jazz quartet. And so Milt hires my dad and we do this amazing house in Scarsdale. And again, getting to go up during the construction. Um, those early experiences, they kind of sunk in subconsciously, I guess. And Yeah. You know, I like to ask people what they wanted to be when they when they were growing up. <clears throat> but you wanted to be like your dad. I mean, I think it's... Not really. No, no, not really. No, um, that's an over overreach there. An overreach, yeah. and even he was not encouraging me. You know, because I. <laughs> Why not? Why not? It sounds like he was successful in breaking through that barrier and becoming, as a black person, becoming part of that architectural community. Uh, it's kind of like the Super Mario Brothers game, where you know you fight like hell and you you pop out at a new level, but then there's greater challenges and you got to keep climbing, and it never stops. And so while he and his partners were able to achieve something noteworthy by having a firm, by getting some major work, by employing, you know, as many as, I don't know, 25, 30 people at one point, um, they still were very limited in the kind of work that they were able to, 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 to get. Um, I, uh, in the meantime, around 10th grade, uh, the school decided to build a darkroom and hire a teacher of photography. And I became his protege, and I just loved uh, photography. I bought an enlarger, converted our upstairs bathroom to a dark room at night, you know, and uh, those were just some wonderful experiences. And believe it or not, all these years later, my teacher, Joe Zabo, and I are still friends. We communicate through, you know, email and social media all the time. Um, and it's great. He's got some books that he's published now and, and just a, a really great mentor to me. Um, but, you know, when it came time to when it was fish or cut bait in, in high school, when you had to declare your major, your co you know, in college stuff, I was applying to these schools and um, I thought, well, I don't like blood, so I'm not going to be a doctor. And I'm too nice. I'm not argumentative, so I'm not going to be a lawyer. 
what do I know the most about? I guess it's going to be architecture. And if I don't like it, I can change my major, you know, and I, I, I went off to Syracuse University as a freshman. Um, the, the culture shock of all of a sudden being on your own up in central New York um, was pretty shocking. Uh, I had a, um, a, a, a tough first year uh, because architecture revealed itself as this incredibly difficult challenge that, that at that time in particular was still, they were cultivating candidates in a mold of a particular typology, a particular persona. And you had to fit in, you know. And if you wanted to bring ideas of other cultures and other architecture into the discussion, it was not, a, not an environment where that was um, reasonably accepted. So uh, it, it was tough and, and I had to grow up in that first year. Uh, and I thought I wanted to transfer, so I applied to Pratt down in Brooklyn. I was accepted, but they didn't give me any financial aid, and Syracuse was giving me a boatload of money. So I ended up going back, and I grew up uh, to meet that challenge, you know. Um, and, I, and I'm so thankful that I, I stayed there and, and finished there. I think that, you know, our cohort and the time that we went through with the faculty and the dean that happened to be there at the time, are still talked about as sort of the glory days, the golden age of the architecture school at Syracuse. Um, and so, um, yeah, fond, fond memories. And it, it basically, you know, helped prepare me for the path ahead, which, as you know, um, has been a, a variety of having my own practice, being in the private side, and then going back to public service and back and forth like three or four different times, you know. Right. Now, now, Raw International, was that right after college? Uh, no, that was, um, you know, I graduated in May of 79, and I we started Raw in um, the summer of 1980. I came on board with Roland Wiley, who, who left Gruen Associates, large firm, to start Raw. Um, and I came on board with him in, like, I think October of 19. 84. And then uh, spent the next 20 years helping to build quite a special practice with uh, Roland and Steve Lott, the third partner. And what was your, what, what did you specialize in? Or what was the, what kind of jobs were you doing with him? Yeah, so, you know, we, we were unusual in that we each assumed a responsible role, whether it was what we wanted to do or not, we agreed. And I became the partner in charge of technology and personnel. Uh, Steve Lott was named the design partner and Roland was the managing partner, the business head. And we started off having weekly meetings and it went for the whole 20 years I was there. Every week we'd sit down and we'd look at where we were going to derive our income, how much from this client, how much from that, what do we have to deliver to get that? And then be, I grew up there because I used to make lofty promises about what was 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 coming and it never would happen. And I would be like, ah, and so I had to learn, you know, the hard way. Um, but I'm thankful for those 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 days of, of growing up that way professionally. Um, and so we were successful in building this business, but we were very limited in the kind of projects that we were, you know, invited to, to pr propose on. Excuse me. And um we, the strategy was to always have what we used to call one cash cow client. And then you could play with a bunch of others that were more interesting. 
So we had, for example, I think our first one was um, the LA Produce Mart. When they were moving into the new produce market, the CRA, the redevelopment agency had built in the produce market. We were doing these tenant spaces for, for the produce guys who were moving over from their old um, uh, 20th century, early 20th century, late 19th century, um, you know, basically derelict facilities um, in, in the industrial part of downtown. And so we were just designing these very functional spaces, getting them permitted, overseeing the construction, and it was cash flow. But we also, you know, and then we went on and we had um, Pacific Bell was our first major corporate client. Then that moved to Kaiser Permanente. And then from Kaiser, the next one was the U.S. General Services Administration, the federal government. And each one of those was strategic um, and allowed us to, to really grow because there was there were projects, enough projects and enough income that you could project to, right. to know that you could build your, your practice. But you said earlier that you were you were kind of left out or, or not able to bid on certain things. Was that is that just outright discrimination? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a combination of unconscious bias. If you're not visible and you're not known to clients, people who hire you, um, then they immediately assume that um, they have to assume some sort of risk if they're going to experiment with you and not paying any attention to the breadth of what you've done. They're just not familiar with black folks being architects, for example. Um, one example was when we had been doing the most complex projects for Kaiser, all renovation projects over on the Sunset campus, the hospital campus, we renovated an entire cardiac surgery floor while they stayed in operation and we had to move everybody around and do all this complicated stuff and insert all these new systems and it was crazy. Well, then they went to a program of building these um, community-based medical office buildings, which they've now, they continue to build out in bringing healthcare to communities instead of making everybody come to the hospital. And um, we really wanted to do a new building. And uh, we were not afforded that opportunity. And meanwhile, we saw um, a new firm had been in business about three years, some people we knew, and they were immediately offered an opportunity and, and got to, you know, start to do that, that kind of work. And so it was like, we start asking, you know, well, where's the problem? Well, it's not necessarily a personal issue with the client. It may in fact be just systemic baked into the systems. You know, before you can do one, you have to have demonstrated you've done five of these in the last five years, you know, valued at $30 million or whatever it is, you know, that just sort of excludes you right out of the gate. Right. But it, I think I read in some of your materials that um, only 2% of all architects are African-American. Is that right? That's true. And it's been that way for 53 years. It hasn't changed. Has not changed. Whereas African-Americans are what percentage of the U.S. population? Between 13 and 14 so it, there's, there's, there's just this, I mean, are there other, are, is this unique or are there lots of fields like this, lawyers, doctors that are yeah. the same? The representation within those fields is much higher. Um, so and what is, it, what is it about architecture then that um, has kept this good old, I'm imagining it's mostly men too, good old, good old white boys network going on. Well, architecture was uh, somewhat affectionately regard, referred to as the white gentleman's profession for a long time. Um, there are more women graduating with architecture degrees today than there are men, but they still can't reach the C-suite. And that's because of lifestyle and having to make decisions between family, children, et cetera. 
Um, but also just because of lingering biases, the same kinds of biases that affect anyone who's not the traditional model. Um, but it's changing. And I have to tell you that the, the American Institute of Architects, the AIA, um, the 60 largest firms have pulled themselves together into a cohort called the Large Firm Roundtable. And they're attacking these issues head on, and especially the issue of the dearth of Black licensed architects. They made an existential commitment back in 2018 to double the number of licensed Black architects by the year 2030. So we did some quick reverse engineering of that, and it's damn near impossible. It will never happen, but aiming high, right? You're going to really get some improvement. Right. And, and you, so, have, you have such an optimistic view of this. I mean, I read this quote that you gave that it was, you want to turn chicken stock into a rich gumbo for all to enjoy. In other words, that this whole field of architecture could be just completely enhanced by bringing in other cultures, other flavors, other perspectives. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I think that as uh, individual architects and firms like ZGF enter this territory and they all of a sudden start to have these partnerships with a, a Black-owned firm, which we've been including partners in almost every pursuit we have right now. And the experience is just so rich because there's a, um, our lived experience as whoever we are, but Black people culturally have a sort of common level of lived experience before we get into how each of us are different. There's some common stuff um, that uh, kind of illuminates um, a, a collaborative process. There's some, this thing called black joy, which is very real. Um, and you've experienced it for me when we sit down and have dinner, you know, it's just, uh, it's just a, in the air. It's in, it's in the aura, but it, it contributes greatly to the richness of uh, collaborative work. And so once you've experienced it and once your eyes are open to it, you know, what's been hidden in plain sight all of a sudden becomes visible. Then there's a real appetite for it. It actually gets, normalized and inculcated into the culture of the firm where the expectation is that we're going to have these partners, these relationships, right? So. Excellent. Excellent. 2006, you, you, you get um, the opportunity to become a Loeb fellow at, at Harvard university. And I know you've talked about that. It just sounded like it was one of the best experiences of your life. It was indeed life changing to um, get to adulthood and, uh, have a chance to number one, go back to school where you can sit in a classroom that you want and learn on your own terms. Uh, and then for that school to be Harvard, uh, wow, what a gift. And it was, um, it was very life-changing because out in this world, you know, I may be the mentor and people look to me and they're, they're looking to me for guidance and advice. But when you go there, I'm a dime a dozen. So, you know, you really can get in, enriched by all of your cohort and your colleagues around you and the faculty uh, and the offerings. I mean, I used to say, you know, it took me 50 years, but I finally went, got to go to Harvard, you know, so. <laughs> what did you learn? What did you learn there? I mean, what, um, you, you'd been a practicing architect for 20 something years. What, what did you learn? Yeah, um, well, uh, I learned quite a bit, uh, both from the classes that I sat in on and the um, initiative that I was championing because each of us took on a certain project and mine was looking, doing a deep dive into this whole issue of race within the field of architecture. And um, through some of the experiences, it was um, 
let's just say as sobering as it was enlightening um, because again, the cultures are not built for diversity. Diversity is sort of forcing its way into a very rigid dynamic, you know, of how, uh, what expect people's expectations are, uh, unconscious biases and so forth. And, um, you know, at one point I scheduled a symposium and I invited like the who's who, the chief architect from GSA, the president of the AIA, um, you know, a bunch of cross-section. And I went to Henry Louis Gates Jr., whose programs you're probably familiar with on PBS. He, had, he does the Finding Your Roots and the, um, you know, African-Americans, Many Rivers to Cross. He does, he's this Harvard professor, you know, he's great. Uh, and I said to him, I, this subject is bigger than the Graduate School of Design. We need to have something in your place the School of African-American Studies that opens us up to the broader Boston community for, you know, a conversation. And he was willing, but the um, dean at the time of the Graduate School of Design uh, learned that I was doing this on a date of the alumni weekend and basically shut me down for that weekend because he didn't want returning alums who would write a check to be adversely influenced by the goings on. And I was like, isn't that the whole reason why we need to have this? You know, because, the, and so, you know, I adopted the philosophy of don't get mad, get even. And so I extracted something valuable from him on the, on the backside of it, was able to bring some of those people back a few weeks later, do a public kind of report out, um, filmed it, it went on YouTube, you know, so good stuff. But um, these were all, uh, I grew so much uh, because in our daily grinds, when we're doing the same routine every day, you know, and you and I both know that, you're only going to grow, you know, so much unless something really great or something really bad happens and you have to adjust and really make, make those, you know, uh, that evolution. Well, you know, every day at the Loeb Fellowship, you're evolving. It was just, it was just tremendous. And then that, that kind of feeds into your work with NOMA, right? National Organization of Minority Architects. I mean, this, this whole conversation relates to that. And you've been, the, you've been the president of NOMA. You've been very involved as the editor of their magazine for a long. I mean, you've shown me several articles you've done over the years. Yeah, yeah. You know, that, that's, that's broader than African-Americans, right, Blacks? It's, it's all minorities, or how does that work? It, well, you know, the truth of it is that when it was conceived of 50 years ago by these 12 founders who were all black, uh, it was going to be NOBA, the National Organization of Black Architects. But after speaking to some legal uh, advisors and uh, in terms of fund fundraising and getting, you know, federal grant money, they had to sort of uh, broaden it to call it minority. And while that was not its original intent, uh, these 50 years later, we've really grown into that. In fact, um, the NOMA membership just went exceeded 3,000 last year. And I would say probably the last, uh, about half, if not more than half of that increase were non-Black folks. And yet the agenda is focused on this singular issue right now. And it does similarly affect other groups, LGBTQ, women, other minority groups. Um, but if, until we can really move that needle from 2% up, then we are the, the poster child for needing, needing all the focus. Um, and it's, it's, 
you know, when we look at the design, both the professional design awards competition and the student design competition, which gets 40 or so colleges from around the country that now participate. And it's really, really crazy competition. And the project is always located in the city that where the convention is going to happen. And it's just really, really incredibly good. Um, it's unbelievable. The work is unbelievable, you know, so great things are happening. Um, what a great, what a great thing to to dedicate yourself to, Steve, and to helping so many others. You're you're a kind soul, and I think it was some of your fellow Loeb or some of your fellow Loeb classmates that went on to the city of Detroit. And you, you after I met you out here, you took off to Detroit for I think three years to work on redevelopment of the downtown core. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, I was. Um invited to come join the planning department in Detroit by my good friend and colleague Maurice Cox, who had been um, installed by Mayor Mike Duggan as the urban design, as the uh, planning department director. And I assumed a position of urban design director for the central region of the city, which both included the downtown and further up north uh, to places like Henry Ford Hospital. And um, excuse me, the um, uh, sports arena district and wherever the big clients were, they wanted me to be the face of the city talking to these heavyweight GM CEO or the, you know, Ford person or whoever. Um, and I was like, all right, you know, I'll talk to them all, you know? So we, we really had some fun. It was challenging. We really had some fun, but you know, Detroit's an 80% black city. And with the new investment that really started with Dan Gilbert brought Quicken Loans into Detroit and brought about 5,000 of his employees and started to bring other Fortune 500s in. And the, the complexion of the city started to change. The age started to change. And you had these longtime residents who had been there from the good days through the bad days and are now worried that when this young white couple moves onto my block, and after 20 years of calling in the city to repair the sidewalk, in one week it gets repaired. That's a sign that they're going to improve my block and I'm going to get forced out. And so the mayor created policy as much as he could within the constructs of a capitalist free market society to allow Detroiters to remain citizens of the city. Even if they had to move, they were given an opportunity to relocate to another house that still was within the city limits. And so not perfect, but, you know, really um, in inclusionary zoning. So every new project um, that had over, I think, 20 units of housing had to have 20% of those units uh, affordable. So if you're building a 100 unit project, 20 of those units had to be affordable. And what that meant was they had to um, they had to be uh, purchased or rented from families making 80% of the median area area median income, the AMI. Um, that doesn't get you to deep affordability, but that definitely gets you to a place where, you know, you can have an economically diverse neighborhood. Steve, your work, your work at ZGF since you came back from Detroit, um, what's your specialty? I was talking to Ted Hyman, the managing partner. We had lunch a couple of weeks ago before Christmas, and I described myself as a utility player. While I was hired to do a particular thing, the reality is um, having owned a business for 20 years, I know no other way to act other than a part as a partner. And so I take responsibilities for personnel. These young people really look up to me. And when they have problems and issues, I'm usually the one they call. And, um, you know, so 
I'm lending my urban design expertise to projects and pursuits that we're after, while at the same time ensuring that we're building partnerships with Black-owned firms and other minority-owned firms to come in and, and, and present a more diverse front of who's going to do this, do, do this work, um, working on diversifying within the walls of the firm, which is really challenging at this moment because People are leaving their jobs, as you and I were just talking about before we started the call. People are losing their jobs or leaving their jobs at the record pace. So, you know, now you got to hold on to who you have. And if you're not paying attention, they're walking out the door. Yeah. Note, note to self. Um, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about, I mean, you're a busy guy. And uh, when we were talking, I guess, last week, um, you've been traveling a lot. And I want to hear a little bit about DC, but then you went off to Costa Rica, I think with Jill just for fun. And then you're off in Paris and you came back to DC. I wrote in my notes, dude. Um, but Steve, you, uh, you know, it's amazing that I've, you and I have become friends. I really appreciate our friendship. And then it's just amazing to me that Colin Powell is your cousin. And, mm -hmm. uh, and tell, talk a little bit about going back there for that tribute, that amazing tribute that the nation had for him on that day. Gosh, you know, Ted, um, one of the things about Colin and everybody calls him Colin. And I think even at the end, he called himself Colin, but growing up, we all called him Colin. Um, good Jamaican boy. Um, is what you saw, what you saw of him in the media, it was just the same person you'd see sitting in the living room, you know, drinking a rum and Coke with him or whatever. And I think the, um, ceremonies that honored him were similar in that as spectacular as they appeared on the on CNN and everywhere else, they were all of that in person. It was, we're in the National Cathedral, just this remarkable piece of architecture and just a stone's throw away. There are three presidents, Obama and Michelle, George and Laura Bush and Joe and Jill Biden and Madeleine Albright and, you know, uh, race Armitage and these figures who, you know, are the foundation of our democracy, which is at such risk right now, right? All there to honor um, Colin. And growing up, you know, he was always deployed somewhere, on some base here in the States or across the, the planet somewhere. But every New Year's, we'd have it at his parents' house. We'd have the Christmas thing at my grandparents. And then we'd have the New Year's thing over there. And it'd be this moment where him and, you know, Alma, his wife, and then Michael, Linda, and Anne-Marie, the three kids, would bust in the door. And he'd be wearing, like, some army fatigues with an army hat on. And he was just, like, this larger-than-life figure, you know. And he was, you know, he was he was relaxing so hard, you know. It was like, you know, he didn't, you know, you know think of him. In, in, like, this guy is, like, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, the Secretary of State, the, the this, the that, and the other thing. What a huge loss. Um, but as I continue to talk to his son, Michael, my cousin, Michael, um, you know, Colin's legacy is, is sound uh, and solid. And, um, you know, Michael, while our, our politics may clash, um, he's family and, and he has really shown his appreciation for, for the cousins, for the family who were there and who continue to check, check in with them and with Alma. Um, yeah, and he, he look, it's, it's sappy and corny, but me and several of my cousins really strove to model his character and who we are. 
you know? Yeah. Having an example like that, it, it, you can't say I don't know anybody. He's family, you know, and you see that. You just want to be like him, you know, and, and you and, you know, we would periodically reach out to get his approval to get his, you know, and he'd give less than a crap about, you know, it's like, what do you, what do you, what do you want? Uh, no, I just want you to recognize that I'm doing this stuff like you did, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, well, it's a no brainer, you know, just keep doing it, you know. <laughs> well, that's a great, that's a great place probably for us to, to wind down and, and, uh, just, just like he would say uh, to you, keep doing it. Yeah, keep doing what you're doing. You're you're making such a difference on the planet. You're doing it with grace and humility, uh, intelligence, um, and and dedication. And uh, I, I just think that's really admirable. So, well, thanks, Ted, and I appreciate our friendship equally. There was a little quick little anecdote I, I had planned to share with you because I, I was thinking back in terms of your universe and um, the first like public sort of pro bono thing I did, I was in either junior high or like a freshman in high school. And it was a street that uh, ran sort of bordered on our neighborhood. And it was um, a street that was bounded on both sides by those woods. So it was like this little cut through and people would just throw garbage out and it accumulated. And I organized a, um, a cleanup before eco was, you know, and it was, it was called ecology then, right? You know, and I, I organized a cleanup, took took slides of it, made a presentation out of it, and we cleaned up the block, you know, and I was like, there you go. So started early. Yeah, that's really great. We, we're, we've been on a very similar path um, in, in very different ways. But again, thank you for what you're, what you're doing. And uh, thanks for being on the Net Positive. Net Positive, baby. <laughs> See you, man. That's it. Thanks for tuning in to this edition of the Net Positive. We'll see you next time.